It's Fire Away Friday. Fire Away Friday. On Exploring the Word, this is your chance to ask us your Bible question. You can email your question at word at AFR.net or visit Facebook.com slash Exploring the Word. Exploring the Word. It's Fire Away Friday on American Family Radio. Fire Away Friday is when we answer questions. Most of the time it's when people call in and they ask us questions, but they also have questions that they send at word at AFR.net on our Facebook page, Exploring the Word Facebook. They ask Alex and myself personally, and uh, so we, we're going to answer some of those questions today. Alex and I are unable to be in the studio today, so uh, we're doing this, and we we'll hope it'll be a blessing to you. Alex, uh, we love those questions and answers, and I tell people when we have done events together, uh, you just, I mean, you preach great, but then when you go to the Q&A, it's like uh, Alex McFarlane gets in a higher gear. These questions really energize you, don't they? Well, they do. I enjoy doing live Q&A in front of audiences, and it's really fun. And, you know, when we do our conferences around the country, that ends up kind of being the, the highlight of it. When people go online and look at videos and things, they always look at the Q&A. But we do love to get correspondence from our listeners, and we get a lot of questions. And um, a lot of people also say some very kind things, and we really appreciate that. Um, if this show is a blessing to you, whenever... Uh, People say things how it, you know, is is a key part of their day. You know, we've had people say that they they uh, go to town and run errands and and they structure their uh, drive time around how they can listen to AFR on the radio and things like that. And we give God the glory, but we do get a lot of questions and we enjoy it. And um, this is the the day we open up the mailbag, isn't it? It we, is. It is. And I've got three or four, <clears throat> and I know you have some. And uh, we love this, <clears throat> and we hope you will enjoy, because usually if, if one person asks the question, especially if they write it in, uh, you know, send it in, it's usually some questions others have. The first one that I have is about Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, and specifically Isaiah 53. Uh, she says it seems, or he does, it seems to describe Christ at Calvary perfectly. And their question is, how long was this before Calvary? And is there a possibility of an overview of the book of Isaiah? Uh, I think this is a good question. Let me just say just a word about the overview. The overview is so, I would say, dramatic in three different sections, Alex, that the liberal comes up with three different authors. You know, know. they're that distinct. And, And yes, I believe it is Isaiah with all my heart. I don't say I think it's Isaiah 1, Isaiah 2, and then be three different people. But uh, it does show some distinctives in what they were discussing, but always a little bit of difference in the way in which they do it. But there's much similarity as well. So the overview, yes. I believe, is one author. But you have the prophecies <clears throat> of condemnation first in the first view. But the latter part, 44 through 66, I'm telling you what, you just go there and you're in you're in you're in high cotton down here in the south. You're Amen. in good territory when you're in those areas, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And you know, Bert, let, let's talk about this for a minute because skeptics in the late nineteenth century and, and the majority of the twentieth century, uh, because a lot of the Old Testament prophecies were so vividly clear about the coming Savior, and frankly prophecies about Israel. 
Um, a lot of skeptics would try to come up with what they said was naturalistic explanations to rather than God supernaturally giving prophecy, they just from a natural perspective were dismissing it. And when you look at Isaiah, you know, Isaiah seven fourteen that Jesus would be born of a virgin, and Isaiah 53, that, you know, he would be like a, a lamb led to the slaughter, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. Uh, and, you know, other prophecies that talk about the life, the ministry, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. A lot of skeptics would come up with these w ways to you know, say, well, it wasn't really a, a miraculously fulfilled prophecy, and there was no Isaiah, or there was two Isaiahs, or three. And, Bert, a lot of college students, I've had students that, that really became skeptics because they had some professor that, you know, was very critical of the Bible. Probably the best book on Isaiah is, that I know of is a book called The Unity of Isaiah by a guy named O.T. Alice, A-L-L-I-S. And it may be out of print. I'm sure you could find it online. And I found, I've, I've seen this book and I've bought a couple of used copies, but uh, Oswald T. Alice, O.T. Alice, they call him Old Testament Alice. Uh, he was a skeptic himself. And he was raised, in, and they didn't believe in Moses, and they didn't believe in the first five books of the Bible. And he later became a, a devout defender of the faith. And he wrote a very famous book called God Spoke by Moses. And then he wrote The Unity of Isaiah. And, um, Bert, let me just say this. I, I'm with you. There was one Isaiah. He wrote by the directive of the Holy Spirit. He, he wrote Scripture as all of the... You know, Second Peter 1, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so it, Isaiah 53 especially does point to Jesus. And it was written in 750 B.C. And uh, there, there are a lot of things, you know, maybe another author that I could recommend who was um, younger than O.T. Alice, but that was Norm Geisler. And he wrote a book, listen to this title, When Critics Ask. Uh, when Critics Ask, and that's published by Baker, and they go through all of these issues of how, um, well, you know, the it's been uh, said the Bible has suffered a lot at the hands of its enemies, but the Bible has suffered a lot at the hands of its friends, because sadly, some of the people that have been the liberal critics that really dismiss Scripture were professed believers in denominations, haven't they? Been? It has been, and again, uh, just Alex and I both have what you'd call a high view of Scripture. That means we believe it was inspired of God, God-given, and authoritative, and uh, accurate in every way, and so we, we praise the Lord for that. One thing I'd say I'd say about Isaiah is the servant songs, and Isaiah yes. 53 is one of those. There's four of them, and uh, it's it's the suffering servant that you see, and uh, it was like the a lot of the Jews just ignored those beautiful, wonderful, absolutely glorious passages talking about the suffering servant. Uh, they could not get their minds around the Messiah, the anointed one, <clears throat> coming and not setting up his kingdom over the Roman government. But the mm -hmm. suffering uh, servant and the servant songs <clears throat> there in Isaiah 42, and you can find it there, Isaiah 49, 
and uh, Isaiah 50 and Isaiah 52 through 53, and and they're beautiful. And uh, it's a good Bible study. If you're a Bible study leader, a pastor, a teacher, a chaplain, uh, doing a study on these servant songs is well worth your time. And uh, then especially when you carry it over, connected in the New Testament with Jesus and his life, Alex, uh, it puts iron in your spiritual blood when you connect those things. Well, it does. And, you know, I've shared this illustration before, and I want to say it again regarding uh, Isaiah. You know, in, in John five thirty nine, Jesus said, search the scriptures for they testify of me. And I really do believe, as W.A. Criswell used to say, that, you know, Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament, and you could... Uh, t- Criswell said a good preacher could take any verse of the Old Testament and make a beeline to the cross. Amen. Well, when Dr. Harold Wilmington, great scholar, and I would urge you to Google his name and, and look at the, he probably wrote 25 or 30 books, Wilmington's Guide to the Bible, um, The King is Coming, Israel at 40, Wilmington's Book of Bible Lists. But he was teaching at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he had a number of um, Jewish friends that he cared for deeply and wanted them to know the Messiah. And and one of the leaders of the school, the Hebrew University, so they went to lunch, and he said, listen, um, I want to talk to you about Jesus. And uh, the man kind of, you know, bristled a little bit, and Dr. Wilmington said, hey, look, we're close, we're friends, um, I, I need to do this, so please, you know, humor me and let me talk to you. And Dr. Wilmington shared Jesus, and um, he asked the man, he said, look, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, what do you do with Isaiah 53? Because, you know, Isaiah is one of the great Jewish prophets, and, of course, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, they found many great scrolls, but the, the, the crown jewel of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran was the Isaiah scroll. And so Isaiah, I- any... Jewish person just reveres Isaiah, and rightly so. Dr. Wilmington said, if Jesus wasn't uh, the Messiah, what do you do with Isaiah 53? And the professor from Hebrew University said, what do we do with, it, with Isaiah 53? We ignore it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, don't ignore Jesus, mm-hmm. friends. Don't ignore the greatest truth in world history, that God came into the world to be the Savior and every every person in the world can know him, and he's as close by as a prayer. You could experience everything the world has to offer, but if you miss Jesus, you've missed everything. And so if you need help and you need someone to talk with, uh, we're again, this is a pre-record. You can go to Triple Eight Need Him. Triple Eight Need Him. There's some people there. They love to talk with you. They, they've got a heart for the Lord. And uh, they will share with you how you can know Christ as your Savior and Lord. You can do it and ask him to be Lord of your life because he is Lord. And you're just surrendering to that lordship as you depart from your way and say, God, I'm ready. You died on the cross. I'm ready for you to come into my life. Take over and take control. I'm yours. I pray that you would do that. Alex, I got another question here, and I think we can answer it in the time frame that okay. we have left in the first segment. And this is about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And uh, 
there's several times angels appear, but ever so often it will be the angel of the Lord. Uh, in Joshua, there's different times and different ways. And they were asking, is this the Lord himself or is this one of his archangels? Uh, it's hard to answer that except specifically when you look at each one of the, the, the context. Uh, context, isn't it? It, it is. Very often, though, the angel of the Lord is what uh, is sometimes called a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Christ. Uh, like when the angel of the Lord appears to Abraham, I mean, I really think that was God incarnate, don't you? I do. And, and pre-incarnation of Christ, you know, when he became flesh— uh, as that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit, that seed, right. uh, he, it seems he remained flesh every time. Now, it was a different kind. It wasn't flesh and blood, blood like us, right. but it seems he could only appear at one place at one time. That's one of the reasons he said, I must send the Holy Spirit. And uh, the, the Holy Spirit can be active in China and active on the other side of the world and the, in America. And same spirit. And but yet Christ seems to have appeared one place. He would appear at on the road to Emmaus. He was there, but then instantaneously he could be back in Jerusalem. But he seems in one place at one time. And but before that, Alex, it seems like he could take up on flesh and appear to people with a message, right? Exactly. And you know, not being bound by time or space, that's how he was in his resurrected, glorified body too. Amen. And one day presumably that's how we'll be we'll be back with more of exploring the word on fire away friday don't you go away this is exploring the word on american family radio Welcome back. You know, on Exploring the Word, we're into the Word of God. And, you know, I think about Romans five twelve, where it says, uh, As by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed on all men, for all have sinned. And it goes on, and of course, it talks about how life comes through Jesus. Welcome back to Exploring the Word. Alex McFarland, Bert Harper here. This is one of our pre-recorded shows, so we can't take live calls, but we are taking listener questions and you can submit a question to word at afr.net net word at afr.net and we love to hear from you and we appreciate you listening also at word at afr.net you can listen to past shows and you know if if a show is a blessing to you or it's got some content that might help somebody you know you can email the link to somebody and and you can do ministry you know bert uh, back in the day, we passed out gospel tracts. I, I still do. I believe in gospel tracts. But now you can pass out links to shows that have, uh, it's, uh, I guess, an electronic gospel tract in a way, isn't it? <laughs> That's neat. I, I had not thought about that, but that's exactly right. The message hasn't changed, but the methodology, yeah, it does. Now, I think the methodology uh, is important, and uh, but the message, man, it's all about Jesus. I, I love to get into pulpits and supply, and the pastor on several occasions 
uh, has left a note in the pulpit that when I get it and look at it, it says, make much of Jesus. And Alex, I I just want to tell you, uh, one time I had a criticism and uh, this guy was criticizing me and he said, you just make too much of Jesus. And I, I, I said, wow, I'll take that. I'll wear that badge anywhere, anytime. And, uh, we on exploring the word. I think we do what you said earlier about W.A. Crystal, you know, open up any page and make a beeline for the cross or for Jesus. Uh, that's, that's what we want to do, isn't it? Well, it is, it is. You know, sometimes when we've um, done our big conferences around and we would be a lot of times in a church, but sometimes we've rented coliseums and so there's more of a stage than, you know, the, the platform like in a church, but on a on a big flip chart on an easel backstage, I would write, "Sir, we would see Jesus." Amen. So, um, yes, the speakers, the last thing they would see before they go out onto the stage would be that. And Erwin Lutzer commented to me one time how he appreciated that. And many a pulpit, I, I don't know if you've ever been behind a pulpit, folks, but many of the pulpits, at least in older churches, would have a plaque on the pulpit facing the preacher. It would say, "Sir." we would see Jesus. And we, you know, we preach, we talk, we debate things. But listen, the the calling for the church, for the Christian, and certainly for the minister, is that we would proclaim Jesus to the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we could talk about everything under the sun, but if we have not presented Christ and how to know him personally, we've really not done our job. Now, I've got a question here, Bert. And here, here's what the listener says. Why did Jesus use parables? Couldn't he just explain truth to his followers? And it's true. Christ, oftentimes, he would convey a heavenly reality through an earthly illustration or a parable. Sometimes, you know, he would speak in a way that people with an open heart could understand very clearly. And then other times, maybe people whose heart was hard or they had some bias or some, you know, obstacle in their mind that they were holding God at arm's length because it was in a parable form, uh, an, an allegory or an illustration. Uh, they couldn't understand because Jesus was speaking in a parable. So I want to throw something out here. Um, it said that he, the Messiah would come and he would speak in parables. And, you know, uh, the Old Testament says it is the glory of a king to conceal a matter. In other words, he can speak so that those in his cabinet might understand, but those that were not subjects of his kingdom or maybe were even enemies couldn't understand. I want to say this. God wasn't trying to be deceptive or trying to trick anybody or withhold truth. Um, but I will say this, the parables, at least our response to the parables, shows a lot about our heart, doesn't it, Bert? It does. And <clears throat> let me just share with you, word stories bring out emotion. So the parables that Jesus gave many, many times, yes, some were uh, harder to understand than others, Alex, but many of them were just as clear as they could be. Why in the world do you criticize that guy that's got a speck in their eye when you've got a two before in your eye? I mean, that's his, you don't have to, that's a word picture that I, yeah, a man really gets it. And men, uh, 
you know, Gary, Gary Smalley, the great communicator, uh, he would say, ladies, if you want your husband to understand some of your feelings, put it in a story and, and make it an emotional word picture about that. And Jesus did that. I mean, he did it again and again. One more observation. Uh, you remember David and Nathan, and God told Nathan to oh, go boy. Uh, to David about his uh, infidelity, his adultery. And uh, if he had gone and just said, man, look what you've done, I'm not sure what David would have done. But after he told the story about the lamb and being taken by the man and, and David have, having an emotional response to that, and then Nathan, Nathan saying, David, you are that man. Uh, he had already was open to truth before the judgment came. And so the parables, don't look on them as difficult. Look on them as blessings beyond measure because most of them have an emotional word picture, Alex. Uh, yeah. the, the prodigal son, that's emotion. And, and I guarantee you those Pharisees that were there, they picked up on that. And so these parables are very, very pronounced and very effective. That's why Jesus used it. I think it was the most effective way of teaching as well. Well, you know, you're so right, Bert, that um, when a person becomes emotionally invested in a story or a parable, um, it's nearly impossible for them to uh, miss it when the parable is turned and really applies to them. You know, like with Nathan, you know, what should be done to the man who killed this little ewe lamb, you know, and David was indignant. And then when Nathan was to say, thou art the man, you know, emotionally and conviction-wise, David was on the hook. And uh, I, I've always thought Nathan would be a good preacher to sit under. I'd lo- I would have, <laughs> if if Nathan had had a church, you know, and I were around, I would have loved to heard him preach. But like I think about the Good Samaritan, you know, when one of the religious leaders, you know, kind of sarcastically said, "And who is my neighbor?" Jesus, yeah. when he would go into a parable, he would say, "A certain man did this, or there was a man who did that," you know, and of course the the Samaritan helped the Jewish person, and who really was the neighbor, you know, and then Jesus would say, go and do likewise. So um, oftentimes the the listener said, couldn't Jesus just have explained truth? I think the answer, and you hit it, Bert, he did explain truth, but he did it in an incredibly powerful way because before the, the punchline was delivered, shall we say, there was a bit of cognitive dissonance and wonder and emotional investment so that when the truth became clearly in focus, it was all that all the more impactful, wasn't it? It was. And so uh, just really relish those parables and get into them, and they will. I, I mean, you remember a story. How many times have I heard a preacher preach, and I don't necessarily remember his application until I remember his illustration. And then mm-hmm. when I remember that illustration— it compounds uh, the teaching and then the application. So uh, the way Jesus taught, he had three things he did, and I learned this in seminary, and and uh, I've adapted it. And I was talking to someone even uh, this week that I I told them how that they were a young preacher and they were developing their sermons, and I said, "How would you like to do it the way Jesus did it?" And he became all ears. I said, "Jesus did three things: he would explain the scripture." 
He would illustrate it, and then he would apply it. I said, when you do that in your sermons, I want to just tell you, you will be successful. And uh, this preacher that is now a retired, that tells you how old I've been around, and uh, he said, you know, Bert, that changed the whole aspect of my preaching. And Mm. so explain the scriptures, get into it, dig out those Greek and Hebrew words, find out how it is used, the context, and then pray that the Lord would show you how, how they applied it, how they applied it, and then be on the lookout in history, biblical, uh, modern-day personal illustrations that bring that word picture to the people who are listening. It is an effective way to teach, Alex. Well, it really is. It really is. Let, let me go on with another uh, question here. And um, folks, you're listening to Exploring the Word, Bert and Alex here, and we're answering some listener mail but uh, Romans eleven twenty five says, quote, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, end of quote. My question, did Israel have to reject Jesus in order for Gentiles to be saved? Also, will Jews accept Jesus when he comes back and then acknowledge him as the Son of God? Wow, it's kind of a, a several parts to that question. Um, let me uh, throw that out to you, Bert. Um, I want to go back to the Romans eleven twenty five for uh, in a minute. But the middle part of the question: Did Israel have to reject Jesus in no. order for Gentiles to be saved? No. When you look at the first promise, and let's go back to the first one with Abraham, or even in Genesis three fifteen. But let's especially go back to Abraham because that's when he was called out and the Jewish nation would come from him, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Alex, it was missional from the very beginning. And and I want to just tell you, I've I've studied the Bible now for years. I mean, got to go to Bible college and uh, go to seminary and then go to seminars, teach, uh, sit under people at conferences and and I, I just want to tell you, I, I taught the Bible. It is God's love story. It is it's His history. But when I saw the Bible from a missional point of view, yeah. just the greatest rescue mission in the world is Jesus Christ. Uh, I want it. It really enhanced it beyond anything I've ever experienced in my life. That it is missional, and the call to Abraham was a call to missions to all the nations of the earth. So the answer is no, they did not have. They were responsible to carry that message. Uh, and and they, they, they didn't do as good a job, just like today the church is not doing as good a job as we should have. Uh, we should be taking the message to the, to the people, to the nations, to the people groups of the world, aren't we? Well, exactly, exactly. I, I love that you're saying that. You know, God is a missionary God, and it's been it's been said God only had one son and he made him a missionary. Amen. And and so um nobody has to be lost. Uh did Israel have to reject Jesus? No. Now, many of them did reject Jesus and I want to go back to the Romans 11:25. It says Israel has experienced a hardening in part. It wasn't a hardening uh in mass or in in whole. There've always been Jewish believers in Jesus. And one thing that really excites me, my dear friend, Dr. Michael Brown, tells me that there are probably right now more Jewish believers in Jesus than at any other time since the first century. That's exciting. Is, Amen. 
Now, um, there is a, a word in the Bible um, in Romans 11 about the times of the Gentiles. And uh, maybe, so for 2,000 years, the majority of Christians have been Gentiles. Uh, and there have been people that, um, you know, sadly, as great as Martin Luther was, and we're all indebted to Martin Luther, but late, late in life, he said and wrote some things that were anti-Semitic and very tragic. And so some Gentiles um, were biased against the Jews, uh, who largely, not completely, missed their Messiah when he came. But there have always been Jewish believers, there always will be, and we are to pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Uh, the times of the Gentiles, uh, there will come a day when the majority um, of the gospel um, impact might shift from the Gentiles back to the Jewish people. Yes. But um, the the phrase there at the Romans eleven twenty five, all Israel will be saved. It doesn't mean that all the people that were Jewish will go to heaven, or all the people that were Gentiles. The people who go to heaven are those who accept Christ and are born again. But apparently, there if if you look at Zechariah thirteen also. When Jesus comes back, there will be a great number of Jewish people alive in the end times that will get saved. We know at least 144,000 Jewish evangelists uh, get converted and begin to minister and are martyred during the tribulation. So um, people realize who Jesus is, and then they have to respond. And Bert, it may be someone listening even right now is realizing who Jesus is. And Jew or Gentile, young or old, male or female, the main thing is that when you understand who Jesus is, you turn to him. Many in history have not. Many have. We hope that you're one of the ones that does. That's why the Bible says today, not tomorrow. One thing you said, and we haven't got time to go to the second question, but just talking about Martin Luther in his latter times. Let me just share with you, blind spots. Uh, there's great men, godly men and women, the founders of our country. They were not perfect. Yes, those blind spots did exist in their lives, but that does not diminish the entirety of their work. Uh, Alex, yeah. blind spots happen to even to us today. I've I've had to correct some of those blind spots. You ever brought a new car and you have to learn where those blind spots are because right. you might turn over or pull out in front of someone? Uh, those blind spots, we it's a lifetime of working on them, isn't it? Well, it is, and you don't want to dismiss the impact of a lifetime by the conduct of one minute. Amen. But this is Exploring the Word. We're going to come back with more after this brief break. Don't go away. Welcome back to Exploring the Word on American Family Radio. If you got pain, he's a pain taker. If you feel lost, he's a way maker. If you need freedom, save it. He's a prison shaking savior. If you got chains, he's a chain breaker. Amen. In the last few years, a lot of the songs that we've sung are about chains and being a God being the chain breaker. Uh, I just love them. Uh, if you've been bound by sin, you're bound by your past. You're bound by by decisions that've been made. It may be you feel like you're bound because of your family of origin, and 
uh, the abuse or, or whatever, I want to tell you, Jesus is the chain breaker. And uh, he's a prison shaking savior. Uh, every time I hear that song, Alex, I think about Paul and, and Silas singing those songs. And at midnight, man, that earth shook and their shackles were gone. And uh, that's the God we serve. And it's the same God today. And we have physical evidence of that. But the greatest, uh, as that old song says, the greatest miracle that God's ever done is when he saved my soul. And uh, that's a miracle. We hope you're experiencing that miracle today. Well, Alex, we're talking about uh, some, some difficult passages here in Romans chapter 11. All of Israel shall be saved. Um, and I, I made the comment, uh, it's so funny, when I come across a passage that is difficult to understand, to unpack, and I start turning into the commentaries or going to the uh, Internet to try to find help, I find a lot of the people struggle with those same questions and difficulties that I do. I find that myself. I'm not by myself. I know. It's funny. I, I like Bible commentaries, and uh, there there are a number of them. Know this. Um, com- there are wonderful commentaries. J. Vernon McGee, Through the Bible. That was really what was called a popular-level commentary in that you know it was good, and it, it could be deep. And then there there's others that are you know very— very deep. I know one that you and I have enjoyed together is um, J. Sidlow Baxter. Yes. Um, um, what, what's the name of that one? Exploring the, um, exploring exploring the book. Yeah, it's yes. close to ours. Ours is Exploring the Word. It's Exploring the Book, and it's a one volume. And what's good about it is its introduction to it. And, yes. uh, you know, there's several like that. There, there's <clears throat> Everybody has their strengths, but when you have strengths, that usually means there's some areas of weakness, Alex. Yeah. And uh, but J. Sidlow Baxter is awesome on the introduction material, and he makes you think. And let me yes. let me give you. I mean, there's some big ones in my office. You know, Kyle and Dalich and all of the. Yes. I mean, the real deep ones when they go into the Hebrew and some that go into the Greek. But uh, find you one that uh, that is understandable, and, yes. and it really helps you, and it will give you a thought. And just because. Uh, they might, you disagree with them on one thing, uh, unless it's a mountain to, to die on concerning salvation by grace through faith, Alex, and, and the authority of the Word of God, uh, you can probably get some truth out of it, but some are better than others, aren't they? Yeah, and you know, it's, it's funny, you have to chuckle, because some of the verses that are kind of, you know, problematic <laughs> and hard to understand— you you might go through three or four commentaries, and it's interesting how they will just gloss right over it and go right. Past <laughs> that was it. my word I was going to use, and I gloss over it. I, I it's uh, let's go to the next verse. <laughs> yes, yes, that's hey, a favorite. You know, we, that's a favorite f- phrase for some of them, isn't it? Let's go to the next verse. I, I want to make an assignment for ourselves, <laughs> Bert. Let's try to compile a list of the verses that nobody touches unless you and I do that. But, okay, uh, I'm writing that down, so I'll hold myself to it. And, and folks, if you think of one of those, write to us at word, W-O-R-D, word at AFR.net. But you want, you've got a question now, or you want me to go? Or you what, go ahead. Let's... You go ahead, man. Oh, okay. All right. In First Thessalonians 4.16, it says that, quote, the dead in Christ will rise first. Does this mean that we don't immediately meet Jesus when we die? Our listener writes. So, um, 
I'm, let me jump in here. I, I think we do immediately meet Jesus when we die, because Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, um, the permanent, eternal, glorified body that we believers enjoy, um, and, and you know, there is some ambiguity on this, too, but I don't, when a believer dies right now today, I believe you close your eyes in death, you're instantly in the presence of Jesus. But um, at the rapture, I think there'll be the permanent glorified body. It's, it's a tangible, corporeal, physical, r- very real world to be in eternity with Christ. But it's even going to get better um, once the rapture happens and eternity proper is ushered in. You know, when Dr. Adrian Rogers, who you and I quote quite often, and he said, that would be another one. He was talking about the verses, nobody touches. You could do the three people that Bert and Alex quote. Vance Havner says, uh, Lewis, and Adrian Rogers. Mm-hmm. I, I know there's others, but <laughs> their names Probably come up. they're the most. They, they come up quite often. When Dr. Rogers was preaching on this, and he was talking about the rapture, he was talking about the great reunion, uh, not only with Christ because he comes and we go to meet him, but the reunion of of the new body, you know, uh, we the Bible says those of us that remain will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Uh, I, I that transformation is going to be beyond uh, lightning speed. I'll just put it that way. And then the dead that rise up, uh, it seems there. And this is the difficult part, Alex. And I I think you're right on this. This is one of those. Uh, does their bodies come, their spirits come? How, how does that happen? Uh, we've got some pretty good ideas, but I just want to tell you, uh, probably just like all of eschatology, when we talk about the future events, I doubt if there's one man that's got it down exactly like it's going to happen. Uh, I figure there's some areas where we're, what you want to be knowing is that you're ready to meet him and he is coming back. That's the bottom line. And then those other areas that you fit in, and, and I'm including myself in that area, Alex, that uh, I, I believe there's going to be some uh, people that say, well, I didn't get that one quite right. <laughs> you know, I yeah, missed sure. it on the The thing you don't want to miss is that relationship with Christ. But I would say, yes, there seems to be, I, I believe there's a reunion there. That's what Dr. Rogers would say. There's a reunion of that spirit and the glorified body. Now, that's where, how he handled that, brother. Amen. Uh, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Great question. So, yes, uh, you will see Jesus when, when we die. And, you know, you referenced the First Thessalonians 4, talking about the rapture, and it says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's the great news, isn't it? It is. Let me ask you one more question that I have. I just brought three with me. I, I went back and looked. And this is a good one, and I, I wanted you to answer this better than me. I've got them, but they're, the books that I have are books that I got in, in, in seminary and in college, and it's about church history. Uh, you know, and he's, he's talking about more than just uh, the beginning of, of the New Testament but this individual is talking about the movement of the church through history. Uh, Alex, most of the ones that I have would be considered academic, um, and and uh, but that you can search that. You can even get online some <clears throat> and search a certain period. Now, some some of the information not be reliable, but 
uh, church history is an interesting uh, study. I, I love church history. When I was taking it in seminary, I took church history in college, and I took it in seminary, and uh, I, I really love to see how God worked in ages past for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be continued to be given in every generation. I'm one of those that believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ was being presented by a group of people. We, we call them a remnant in every generation. Everywhere. I do believe that, brother. Yeah, the gospel has never really gone silent. And, you know, uh, we don't talk about it enough on this show, perhaps, but let us urge you to become a student of church history. Because it really, really is fascinating. And I know I throw a lot of names and titles and such out there. But let me, uh, Bert, you, you might remember this book, the, the Church in God's Program. And the author was named Saucy, S-A-U-C-Y. Do you remember that book, The Church? I remember. In, yes, I do. Uh, now, uh, that's a really good book about, you know, what a beautiful thing is. I mean, God... God's got several plans for this world. Number one, to send his son to be the Savior. And then uh, the the New Testament was completed, and, you know, the apostles went around the world, and the church got started. Uh, but a beautiful thing that runs right parallel to the gospel has been the, the church, the history of the church. And, you know, not only, my goodness, not only has the growth and the spread of the Christian church brought the message of salvation, but really the the story of human progress is the story of the church going around the world. And, I mean, even secular historians and um, the twice Pulitzer-nominated sociologist historian Rodney Stark talks about the fact that the the growth of the church has also been the story of human progress. Because if you look at literacy, if you look at science, if you look at the development of medicine and hospitals and sanitation and water and so many of the things, and then the great technological advances, uh, even from, you know, uh, the airplane to computers to many, many of the things that we take for granted today— um, the vast majority of everything that has contributed to the betterment of the human condition has come from the church because it was, you know, for one thing, we're made in God's image, and when we serve each other, it says we're serving the Lord. And so, you know, goodness and virtue and charity and benevolence has come from out of the church. But also technology and medicine and science because people believed that this uh, world was the product of an orderly, intelligent God. And because God, the Creator, is orderly and intelligent, this world is going to reflect the Creator, and the creation is intelligible, and we can understand it. And so, um, be a student of church history. Now, let me throw a couple of more books out here, and I've mentioned them before, but they're so good called Christianity Through the Centuries by a guy named Earl Carnes, and it's spelled C-A-I-R-N-S. And a very dear friend of mine uh, helped work on that book, but uh, Christianity Through the Centuries, uh, a quickie, but it's so good, is um, The Five-Minute Church Historian by Dr. Rick 
Cornish, C-O-R-N-I-S-H, published by InterVarsity. That's really good. But, you know, what's inspiring about church history, Bert, is it's been a great story. The gospel has been spread. The world, the human condition has been improved. And yet we realize that we're, we're still in church history. And, and you and I are a part of church history. That's exciting. Let me recommend this. This is not as much a technical book, but it's one that will give you it's by your friend. He's gone to be with the Lord, Charles Chuck Colson. Oh, and yes. The Body. Now, he wrote a lot oh, of yeah. God and government and good. I mean, you get a hold of Chuck Colson book, just just buy it and, and read it. But The Body really demonstrates how the church has has lived in a— dark world and how it has ministered. And he goes back in history and gives some of those uh, illustrations. Again, it's not uh, one that goes on a timeline, but he goes back and gives the history of it and gives you what it brought to us today. And so, Alex, those are awesome, awesome books. And uh, praise the Lord for him um, that having that as an option for us. Alex, you got one more question. we got probably time for one more if you've got a question. I do. Um, a listener writes in and says this. Listen carefully. Quote, Did our belief about everlasting torment simply come from the Middle Ages, Dante and Augustine? That's what I was told in college. So, well, first of all, let's lay a little backstory. Um, Dante... Uh, would have been definitely from the Middle Ages because he lived in the 1200s. And Dante wrote very famously, among other things, The Inferno. Uh, Augustine, I would not really consider Augustine Middle Ages. Um, Augustine lived 354 to 430. The Middle Ages is generally considered um, at the very earliest, the late 5th century to the 15th century. So, um, it's, I would say it's a stretch to consider Augustine part of the Middle Ages. Um, I, I know I'm being a little quibbling here, but, you know, we need to speak with precision. So um, Augustine, I think, would properly be understood to be the, the latter part of early church history. But at any rate, um, Bert, I think a lot of people, they get kind of rattled in college because a professor will just glibly say, well, you know, um, this idea of a sadistic God that just delights in, you know, frying people in a barbecue forever, that's this horrible primitive Middle Age idea that the Bible never did teach. And so there, there's a couple of things. They're making a caricature of what hell is. Now, as, as uh, Jonathan Edwards said, Jonathan Edwards, the great president of Princeton University and the colonial American preacher of the Great Awakening, regarding hell, somebody said to Edwards, you know, that's, maybe that's not true. And Edwards said, tis dreadful, tis awful, but tis true. So here's the thing. Our belief about the everlasting conscious punishment of the unbeliever, it, it did not simply come from the Middle Ages. And it's not what... Um, I think a lot of college professors caricature it to be. There is hell for those that reject salvation. And you know who taught that, Bert? Jesus. Jesus. Luke 16 is a vivid picture of life after death without Christ. Mm. And uh, it is real. Well, Alex, 
thank you for uh, being uh, here and answering those questions. And we hope this will bless those who have asked them and others who are wondering. You know, it usually yeah. reaches across lines, doesn't it? It really does. And we appreciate you listening. Hey, tell somebody about Exploring the Word and AFR. But most of all, what, Bert? Tell everyone about the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>